All right, everyone, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to the People's House. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the rally to defend Montana's Constitution. My name is Keegan Madrano, and I'm the Policy Director at the ACLU of Montana, and I'll be your MC today. First, we want to thank our co-hosting organizations, some of whom are here on this sign over here, and who have been constantly working behind the scenes in this building for your rights and for the provisions that you'll find in the Montana Constitution. <laughs> We have a wonderful lineup of speakers today who have crafted, who have assessed, and who live the Montana Constitution. We also have a number of different organizations tabling on the wings, available later to share their ongoing work to protect and embolden the Montana Constitution, as well as organizations that are here to answer questions and educate you on their work. The Montana Constitution is the foundation is the earth with which this building and the people within it sprout forth. It is from this earth that we cultivate our Montana. But as many of us know, when you overtill the land, you sully the earth and destroy that which you seek to create. What is happening right now in Montana is that effort to overtill. What is happening right now is a flagrant disregard for the existing provisions of the Constitution and a craven effort to impose their most unpopular ideas into our document. We cannot abide by this. Our speakers cannot abide by this. First, we'll hear from Maine Ann Ellingson. At 24 years old, Maine Ann was the youngest delegate to the 1972 Constitutional Convention. After the convention, she became a lawyer and worked for 33 years at Dorsey and Whitney LLP. She retired in 2013, but has continued to do pro bono work for nonprofit organizations. Maine Ann is active in many, community, uh, many communities, organizations, and projects. And when, as one of the nine remaining delegates, she gladly talks about the Constitution and the Convention. Everyone, let's welcome Maine Ann. Thank you. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for me. Thank for allowing me to speak about this Constitution, which is near and dear to my heart and to the delegates who served and who have now passed. And in particular, I would like to start off by reading the preamble to our Constitution, which reads, I probably should know this by heart, but I'm afraid I will goof it up. It was taken from a delegate proposal written by me and fellow delegate from Missoula, Bob Campbell, who passed this last year. 
the people of Montana, grateful to God for the quiet beauty of our state, the grandeur of our mountains, the vastness of our rolling plains, and desiring to improve the quality of life, equality of opportunity, and to secure the blessings of liberty for this and future generations, do ordain and establish this Constitution. I was asked to speak particularly about the intent of the framers of the Constitution. And there's really no better place to look for the intent of the framers of the Constitution than in this document itself. There are proceedings of the convention that can also be consulted in questions where the intent is not clear. But the intent of those hundred people was at least twofold. It was to write a constitution that could constitute a government that could adequately, respectfully, and transparently serve the people of Montana. And, and at the same time, to create a Bill of Rights that will protect those citizens of Montana from the excesses of the government that we created. I think it has been and is a good balance of protecting rights and creating a government that can effectively govern our state. You probably know that the state has the strongest declaration of rights of any state constitution. And you'll hear a little bit more about that from the speakers that follow me. I'm going to focus more on the structure of the constitution itself and why we are here today. A little history will help. The primary purpose of that 1889 Constitution was not to create a government that would work well for the state of Montana. The primary purpose of that Constitution, just like the three failed ones before, was to achieve statehood for Montana. Because since 1866, Montana had been a territory, and it was under the auspices of the federal government. The powers that be in Montana in 1884 and 1889, which were largely the timber interest and the mining interest, wanted away from the federal control. And one way to get that was to become a state. The 1889 Constitution was passed by there were only 2,000 votes against it. So eager was our state for, for statehood. Now, as I said, the framers of that Constitution didn't really care about creating a strong government. As a matter of fact, they preferred not to have a strong government because it would interfere 
with their working. So we had a very weak legislature, we had a very weak executive branch, and we had a Supreme Court that was under the copper collar. In 1947, an author wrote in, in a magazine called Inside the USA that Anaconda, a company aptly named, has a constrictor-like grip on much that goes on, and Montana is the nearest thing to a colony than any American state. Ten years later, Anaconda Company still owned most of the newspapers. And there was an article in The Economist that noted in 1957, Montana newspaper readers were worse informed about their own affairs than the inhabitants of any other state. That was in 1957. In 1960, Lee Enterprises started acquiring the Anaconda newspapers, hiring diligent reporters, and things started changing for the better in Montana in 1960. There was an effort made, headed by the League of Women Voters and the then state legislature, to look at our Constitution and to see whether or not it served the needs of the people. That question was submitted to the voters, and the voters overwhelmingly approved the calling of a new constitutional convention. The hundred delegates that were elected to write this Constitution out of the 515 people who filed statewide had nothing in common with the 75 delegates who wrote the 1889 Constitution. Our president, Leo Graybill, was nothing thankfully, like William Andrews Clark. Another significant difference, and one I'm very happy to allude to on this Women's History Month, is that there were 19 women who served out of the 100 delegates. That was a watershed. a watershed moment for women in politics, in government, in Montana. The fact that sitting legislators could not run for the Constitutional Convention contributed in part to the election of so many women. But that also, the fact that they couldn't run, had another very, very salutary effect. And that is the, the existence of relationships between lobbyists and incumbent legislators was broken. The corporate lobbyists did not have immediate allies within the Constitutional Convention. In fact, lobbyists were barred from the floor, and for the first time ever, lobbyists were required to disclose financial matters, that their financial expenditures. That did not happen on the legislative level until 1980. What did we do and how did we achieve this 
Constitution, with no political, with the political parties taking no positions on what should be in the Constitution, the weakened role of the corporate lobbyists, the delegates were free to exercise their conscience, to exercise their judgment, to take requests and orders and testimony from their constituents, and to vote their conscience for what was in the best interest of the state of Montana. We made a constitution that belonged to the people, and as the opening phrase so aptly states, it's we the people's constitution. We did not create a democratic We did not create a Democratic Party constitution or Republican Party constitution. It's a we the people constitution with the power derived from the people, the power retained by the people in this constitution. It is far, far, far from being a socialist rag. particularly in the sense that we took the three separate branches of government, tried to make them more equal, accountable, with checks and balances and separation of powers. We expected that the legislative branch would make laws, the governor, the executive branch would execute and implement, and the Supreme Court would interpret the laws and the Constitution. As I mentioned, under the 1889 Constitution, the people's branch of government, my favorite branch of government, actually, the legislative branch, was very weak. They met every other year for 60 days. They could never get their business done. They would have to put a piece of cloth over the clocks to keep from time running out at the, at the very end. They had no ability to have staff. They had no interim committees. We significantly enhanced in the role of the legislative body, the people's branch. We, made, we provided for annual sessions. It's much to my disappointment now that the legislature is somewhat weakened, I think, by going back to biennial sessions and by term limits. But whenever I try to sell the notion, let's go back to annual sessions, people say, no, we don't want the meeting at all. <laughs> but we need a strong, strong legislature. So we've got an executive branch that now functions properly. There's accountability. Um, there wasn't before. We've got a legislative branch who has the tools that they need to effectively govern. So why are we here today after 50 years of great success under this Constitution, feeling the need to defend our Constitution? What is 
going on. The Constitution works, the government works, what is happening? It is so ironic to me, as a member of the Legislative Committee at the Convention, to see the legislature have such antipathy toward the Constitution. It, it just, it, it's mind-boggling because so the Constitution did so much to strengthen that branch of government. The only thing I can figure I think we've all heard the notion that power corrupts. And I wonder if that's at play here. It seems to me that the legislature, duly elected as they are, think they are the supreme branch of government. And they do not... They do not like any attacks on their power, whether it's through the Supreme Court saying you cannot do that, or even disobeying their own legislative uh, attorneys saying that's probably unconstitutional. They simply want to do what they want to do. And that is why we have constitutions. Each of these branches of government must stay in their own lanes. Now, it seems to me that the legislature has declared war on the Supreme Court. They want to punish it by increasing their workload, reducing the number from seven to five. They call them in on all kinds of subpoenas, and they want to make it more in their shape. They want to make it more political and more partisan. We, the people, all of you, can stop that. This Constitution clearly gives the legislature the right and the authority to propose amendments to this Constitution. They are, they are implementing their rights under this Constitution if they can get a hundred votes of their members to submit to us, the people, a change in this Constitution. They can't do it alone and that's why your being here is so important. Any amendment, any proposed amendment that makes it through this legislature will be on the general ballot in 2024. The, you, the people, approve this Constitution, and you, the people, are the only, only, only ones that can change that. Don't despair if an amendment or two gets through. In fact, I would rather they propose an amendment to the Constitution that says 
the right of privacy doesn't extend to a woman's right to choose. I would rather them do that and let the people decide rather than them trying to change for the future the makeup of the Supreme Court. Don't be afraid of these amendments that come through. Recognize the power resides in we the people. Constitution is a living, breathing document, and we are the ones that give it life. We are the ones that perpetuate its existence. And as Maynan noted, they may throw any constitutional referendum at us that they may want, but you all know that you all have the power to rebuff those, rebuff those assaults which do not align with the majority of Montanans and the Montanans that I see in this room today. Our 1972 Constitutional Convention delegates understood, as Maynan noted, how wealthy and out-of-state interests have in the past attempted to capture Montana for themselves. And they've built safeguards through a devotion to three separate branches of government and foresaw the contemporary fights over the environment, over privacy, and over equal protection by enshrining these in our Constitution. Next. We're going to hear from retired Montana Supreme Court Justice Jim Nelson about the judiciary. Jim served as a justice from May of 1993 up until January of 2013. Prior to serving on the court, Jim engaged in general practice of law and cut bake for 20 years. Additionally, he served as Glacier County Attorney and Prosecutor for 14 of those years. In retirement, Jim has served as a Special Master and as a consultant and expert witness in various cases. Jim has always been an outspoken advocate for civil rights and for a fair, impartial, and independent judiciary. And I'm going to hand it over to Jim now. Thank you, and thank you all for being here uh, in this uh, very inclement weather. Let me start by asking you some questions, and I want to hear your answers loud enough that they can hear it on the next floor up, and down the hall, and across the street. When you or your organization goes to court to enforce your rights, you want a court that's under the thumb of the legislature, the governor, or the attorney general? No! Do you want a court where the judges or justices are appointed political hacks? 
and owe their allegiance to their party. No! Do you want a court where a judge and a justice's decision is based on partisan or religious ideology instead of the rule of law? No! Do you want a court that disrespects precedent and our Constitution? No! Well, neither do I. impartial, independent, nonpartisan courts presided over by elected judges and justices. And and make no mistake, make no mistake, this challenge is and will continue to be a fight, indeed a fight to the death against the jihad focused on our third branch of government, a war perpetrated by the Supermajority Freedom Caucus, legislature, the governor, and the attorney general. And why this jihad? Well, let me give you some reasons. Beginning with the 2021 session, and now with the present Supermajority Freedom Caucus, the legislative branch has determined that it should be the one all-powerful branch. Uh, this is nothing, nothing but a poorly disguised power grab by the legislature with the governor and the attorney general promoting and assisting this effort in their own right. This power grab requires that there must be a weak, compliant court system and the weakening or elimination of our Constitution's requirements for separation of powers, checks and balances, and the separation of church and state. This power grab ends with executive and the Supermajority Freedom Caucus Legislature imposing an authoritarian regime on Montanans, a regime in which we are deprived of our fundamental rights, including, to name a few, our exclusive right to govern ourselves. We the people, we the people are the seat and source of power, not the legislature and not the government. probably going to lose our inalienable rights to a clean and healthful environment and, and to seek our basic necessities, our liberties, our health, and our happiness in all lawful ways. We're going to lose our right of inviolable human dignity, our rights of free speech, assembly, and the press our rights to participate and to know, our right of suffrage, 
our right of individual privacy, our right to a quality education and to learn about the cultures of Montana's sovereign native peoples, and our right to make laws and amend our Constitution using the citizens' initiative process. By one tally, the Supermajority Freedom Caucus this session has offered some 42 bills and nine constitutional amendments attacking the judiciary and courts. These numbers are conservative. Other tallies place the number of bills in the hundreds. The Supermajority Freedom Caucus aims to take away our court's power of judicial review. That, coming from Marbury versus Madison in 1803, is the court's duty to declare laws and statutes unconstitutional when those violate our Constitution. They aim to insert the executive and the supermajority Freedom Caucus into judicial decision-making. They aim to marginalize and take control over our courts and our judiciary. They aim to destroy the separation of powers, the checks and balances, and the separation of church and state that our Constitution stands for. They aim to weaken and demonize our elected nonpartisan judges, judges and justices, and instead stack the judiciary with their own hand-picked, appointed partisan flunkies. They demand judicial obeisance to their partisan and religious ideologies. Indeed, indeed, they aim to impose white Christian nationalism to replace our rule of law. And the Executive and Supermajority Freedom Caucus want total power to do what they want to whomever they want, whenever they want to do it. And they don't want fair, impartial, independent, nonpartisan elected judges and justices getting in their way of ruling of the party, by the party, and for the party. Numerous bills and nine constitutional amendments attacking the judiciary. And that doesn't count the 61 other constitutional amendments that the legislative branch has proposed. And it doesn't take, uh, and it doesn't count for the numerous other bills targeting the LBGTQIA community, transgender people, the poor, those who dress in drag, women seeking to terminate a pregnancy, those suffering an incurable illness who want medical aid in dying, a dignified death, educators who want to tell and teach the hard truths, and re resident, resident Montana hunters and fishers. There's more, but time does not permit. Suffice to say that the Executive Supermajority Freedom Caucus are very adept at comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. So my friends, the battle has been joined. Each of us must do our part. We must call out legislators. 
We must write letters to the editor. We must assemble and rally. We must not forget what is at stake. Nothing less, nothing less than our constitutional tripartite government, three co-equal branches with separation of powers, checks and balances, and the scrupulous adherence to the rule of law. What is at stake is nothing less than saving our Constitution and our democracy. Our fair, independent, nonpartisan elected judiciary is what is on the chopping block. And if we don't want to lose it, we must fight like hell to keep it. doubts in that regard, know this, that our courts, our judges, our justices, and our Constitution are the only thing standing between we the people and the tyranny of the majority. Thank you. that we have here in Montana is our free and open elections. We have Tahim Perez, the Deputy Director of Western Native Voice, to speak to us today about voting rights. Let's welcome Tahim to the podium. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tahim Perez, and with me here is my son, Elio, uh, who is four. So Elio and I are both uh, Tutunaku, which are uh, a people, our people, Elio and my people, um, <clears throat> for long before recorded history, have lived on land that stretched from coastal Veracruz in Mexico to the highland areas of Puebla. So today, we have assembled on land stewarded and occupied since time immemorial by various tribes, including the Amskapi-Pakani and the Salish people. Many of us here, including myself, as I just explained, are guests on these lands, and we cannot forget that. To that end, uh, my conversation with you all today about the Mon Montana Constitution cannot ignore these and other indigenous people. In fact, if someone were to take a deep dive into the documents related to the 1972 Constitutional Convention, in particular the Roeder and Neely pamphlets, it's clear that a, quote, Indian problem existed in the minds of at least some convention delegates. This Indian problem is not what you may initially think or what history has called an Indian problem. The Indian problem was about acknowledging and attempting to address the harms felt by indigenous people, Montana's indigenous people, from colonization, assimilation, termination, and failed extermination. 
To that, their solution is Article 2, Section 4 of our Montana Constitution. Article 2, Section 4 does something incredibly special. And I think one of the previous uh, speakers um, uh, may have put it a little too lightly that it is a typical document. This document, our Constitution, is a special document. Article 2, of course, is the Declaration of Rights. And Section 4 begins, quote, the dignity of the human being is inviolable, unviolable. Further, it goes on to declare in part that neither state nor any person shall discriminate against any person on account of, among many things, culture. The mention of culture is an acknowledgement of the unique status of indigenous people as cultural, culturally political entities not as a race, a distinction that is, is as important as it is misunderstood. The Montana Constitution, as we see with Article 2, Section 4, is an uncommon attempt at an accountable government. Accountability, that word, is never more important than it is today, right now. As the speakers before me impressed upon all of us, legislators who want to consolidate power are looking to fundamentally change the guarantees of an affordable, or sorry, of an accountable government. So what is our recourse? We, the people, those of us gathered here and many of those who are in our communities, in our families, in our friendship groups back home, hold the power and responsibility of keeping our elected representatives and senators accountable to the impact of their decisions, the impact of their votes. Our vote on election day is how we do that, especially when we can vote without oppressive government over-regulation of our free and secure elections. The best evidence to how effective electoral accountability can be is simply by paying attention to how badly some legislators in this building want to create roadblocks for voters. Attempts to disqualify voters off of inactive voter rolls, change to no excuse absentee voting, attempts to dictate how, how to help you turn in your ballots and, take away, and taking away the power to directly elect our judges have all reared their ugly heads. The legislators who sponsor and vote for these policies don't want you to vote. They don't want the working poor Montanans to vote. They don't want LGBTQ plus Montanans to vote. They don't want elder Montanans to vote. They don't want Montanans who require accessibility modifications or needs to vote. They don't want Montanans at our colleges and universities to vote. They don't want our organized brothers and sisters to vote. They don't want indigenous Montanans to vote. They want to frustrate. They want to discourage all of us from voting. 
They don't want to be held accountable. We cannot allow them to get away with it. And when, our and when our accountability votes fail to stymie the anti-constitutional radicals who threaten our right to vote in the way we want to vote, that threaten our ability to direct, directly vote for our judges, that want to inject blind and destructive partisanship in our independent judiciary, then it is our obligation to show up and remind them that we are watching. It is our obligation because it isn't just our vote that it's at risk, that it's at stake. Our rights are at risk. Our dignity is at risk. Our dignity to be who we are. Our dignity to love who we love. Our dignity to live our distinct cultures. Our dignity as Montanans are all at risk. I must ask you now, will we allow these efforts to go uncontested? No! Will we stand idly by while our Constitution is undermined? No! Will we compromise on our dignity? No! Our vote is sacred, our dignity is sacred, and we'll fight like hell to protect them both. Thank you very much. during the Constitutional Convention writing, but I try to be an Indian problem every day in this building. <laughs> Next up, we have Representative Howell from House District 95. Representative Howell fights every day in this building with care and compassion against those in this state that act in self-interest and refuse to listen to their fellow Montanans while they mercilessly take away our rights. Next up, I'll have Representative Howell. Good afternoon, everyone. It's so nice to see you all here. Like Keegan said, I'm S.J. Howell. I represent House District 95 in Missoula. And I am proud to be here with you today, representing you here in the People's House. And I am proud to come to work every day and fight to protect and defend the Constitution. I've been asked to speak today about our constitutional right to privacy. And I'm gonna start by reading to you Article 2, Section 10, Right to Privacy. The right of individual privacy is essential to the well-being of a free society and shall not be infringed without the showing of a compelling state interest. And look, we know Montanans love their privacy. This is true for Montanans of all political affiliations, urban or rural, wealthy or working class. And the authors of our Constitution recognized that a fundamental right to privacy was crucial to protecting all the ways of life that Montanans hold dear. 
Privacy can mean a lot of things. We talk a lot in this building about Article 2, Section 10 as relating to the right to privacy with regard to medical decisions and bodily autonomy, and specifically the right to reproductive health care and abortion care. choices about our bodies, about what care we receive, about how and when to start families, I can't think of much that's more personal and deserving of privacy than that. We also care about privacy of personal information, digital data, we care about the freedom of movement and association free from surveillance. We care about protection from illegal search and seizure. We believe that privacy allows us to be who we want to be, to dress how we want to be, to marry who we want to marry, to worship as we see fit. to privacy is the right to live our lives as we choose, based on our deeply held beliefs, whatever those beliefs may be. And we heard this already, and I say this as I stand before you here today as an elected member of your government, that our constitutional right to privacy serves primarily to protect Montanans from the government. said, and I'll quote, the state constitution is a limitation upon the power of the legislature and not a grant of power to that body. Government should not be in the business of telling people what health care they can access, whether they can use birth control or seek gender affirming care. Government should not be in the business of mining online data and using that data to criminalize people. Government should not be in the business of telling people whether or not they can seek abortion care or any type of reproductive care in consultation with their family and their doctors. And the thing about privacy is, you either have it or you don't. We can't have partial privacy or privacy for some people but not others. We can't draw a line and say these healthcare decisions can be private but these ones can't. Because the very act of legislating who gets what privacy is itself a government in intrusion. And it is almost always based not on a compelling state interest but on politics. And not the good kind of politics. Not the politics that fixes a problem or build something, but the politics that scapegoats a set of people for political gain. I want to leave you with a quote from another Supreme Court case, Armstrong v. State, which has 
really upheld this fundamental right to privacy and what it means in our lives. I'm going to quote, attempts to define this right, the right to privacy, notwithstanding, we conclude that while it may not be absolute, no final boundaries can be drawn around the personal autonomy component of the right to individual privacy. It is, at one and the same time, as narrow as is necessary to protect against a specific unlawful infringement of individual dignity and personal autonomy by the government, and as broad as are the state's ever innovative attempts to dictate matters of conscience, to define individual values, and to condemn those found to be socially repugnant or politically unpopular. So I will leave you with this thought. As zealously as the Constitution protects us, we must in turn protect the Constitution. Piecemeal amendments are both dangerous and short-sighted. It is true that the Constitution is a living document, and we can and should consider the precious few instances when changes and updates are warranted. But to line up a list of amendments based largely on the political moment that we are in, that is something that we can and will resist here in the People's House, at the ballot box, and in the streets. Thank you, Hal. And I know Hal has to now go to the floor and go give him hell there. Yeah. <laughs> our last speakers today, and, and with our last speakers today, we want to highlight Montana's right to a clean and healthful environment. <laughs> and they have incredibly personal connections to this right. These two people are a part of a landmark case, Held v. Montana, in which 16 young people from across the state of Montana has filed their constitutional climate lawsuit against the state of Montana. And so with our last few moments together here, I want to hand it over to Roger and Micah. Thank you. Thank you, Keegan. What a, what a great honor to be here with you today. Championed by Maine Ann Ellingson, our Constitution starts with a covenant between generations. You heard that beautiful prayer that, that Maine Ann and Bob crafted 50 years ago for this and future generations did they ordain and establish our Constitution. This solemn commitment to future generations is part of the fabric of fundamental rights woven into our Constitution, including the mandate that, and I'm quoting, the state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations.
It, it took us 25 years to get there, but in 1999, the Montana Supreme Court, in the seminal case of MEIC versus DEQ, told us what this constitutional right means. We conclude that the delegate's intention was to provide language and protections which are both anticipatory and preventative. Well, folks, a quarter of a century later, the state of Montana is still failing that standard big time. The science is unequivocal. Climate disruption uh, is causing, primarily caused from the extraction and burning of fossil fuels, and Montana's vast coal reserves exceed those of any other state. And so Montana is responsible for the release of globally significant greenhouse gases, which contribute to a host of impacts which we have all experienced. Uh, the weird weather, which can cause increasing temperatures, more frequent and more extreme drought, wildfires, diminished stream flows, or torrential downpours and flooding along with impacts, especially to children. Atmospheric science instructs that the CO2 emitted by the activity of today persists in the atmosphere for hundreds of years, meaning that today's children and future generations will disproportionately bear the harm from our present-day emissions. This deeply troubling moral dimension to the climate crisis is why our children's right to a sustainable future is a matter of intergenerational justice. <laughs> to, protect, to protect their fundamental constitutional rights, 16 Montana youth, including Micah, who's with us today, have brought the case of Hell v. State of Montana. The youth plaintiffs include children from ranch families, enrolled tribal members, and families who, like you, actively participate in Montana's outdoor traditions of hiking and hunting and fishing. The youth plaintiffs, uh, and therefore, our nation's first constitutional climate trial begins June 12 here in Helena. The youth plaintiffs will prove that the that conduct by the state has resulted in a fossil fuel energy system that causes dangerous levels of greenhouse gas pollution that contribute to the climate crisis and that violate the youth's fundamental constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment. And yet, as we gather here today, the legislature has pending before it a draft proposal to revise Montana's constitutional language regarding the right to a clean and healthful environment. In this, in this, as Maynan said, the 50th year, the 50th anniversary of our Constitution, I'm hoping that you will stand with these young Montanans in telling our legislators, hands off our Constitution. Let's, let's hear it one more time. What do you want our legislators to know? Hands off our Constitution. Thank you. And uh, now it's my honor to uh, turn the podium over 
to one of the youth plaintiffs, Micah. Good afternoon. My name is Micah Cantor, and I am 14 and in eighth grade at Washington Middle School in Missoula. I first learned about the climate crisis when I watched the film Chasing Ice. At four years old, my parents expected me to only like the beautiful scenery that came with the film. Yet I understand the true meaning and the message. The film deeply upset me, prompting me to dictate a letter with my parents to Senator Tester. Seeing the decline of nature and animals in the film, and so much that I spent outdoors and time in nature, it deeply affected me. Since I was little, I've always gone on hikes, backpacking trips, bike rides, snowboarding, and runs. Due to droughts, wildfires, and lack of snow, I've been unable to do many of them. These activities are very important to me, and it would devastate me to lose these activities I'm so passionate about. I love animals. My favorite animal is a pika. Unfortunately, they will be one of the first North American animals to go extinct because of climate change. And it scares me to think that I might be unable to see my favorite animal ever again. And to not lose these animals and the activities I love, I decided to act. I went to protests, wrote letters, and made comments. And I eventually joined as one of the 16 plaintiffs in the lawsuit held versus the state of Montana. I'm not... I'm not old enough to vote, so sometimes it is hard for me to feel like my voice is being heard. We need to do more. Voting is important, but even if I could vote, that is not enough. And I felt that the lawsuit was the best way for me to make an impact. My fellow plaintiffs and I are asking the courts to protect our constitutional rights to life, liberty, property, and a clean and healthful environment. Our state constitution is an enforceable legal document that gives power back to the people and guarantees all Montanans a variety of individual and collective rights and freedoms. That's why I'm here today, because Montana continues to cause harm by promoting energy policy that is damaging its citizens and environment in violation of our constitutional rights. Despite knowing about climate change and its detrimental effects for decades, the state of Montana has decided to ignore it for profit. But we have to ask ourselves, if it is worth it. Is it worth it to lose the things we love? Is it worth it to lose the places that we relish? Is it worth it? All in order for more profit. All right, folks. That's all. <laughs> so there's information on both of the wings. The Senate is about to hear one of the most egregious anti-LGBT bills. If you want to go to the gallery, do it now. They are starting deliberation on SB 458. Thank you all for coming. Have a good rest of your day and safe travels.